Can we uh, bow our heads this morning, close our eyes, let's pray. As we often do, I just want you silently uh, where you are. We just give God thanks for something this morning. Acknowledge his character, his greatness. Tell him something that you're specifically grateful for uh, in your life today or this week. I want you to take a moment to surrender before God and just ask him in this moment or this morning that he will, um, in your surrendering, that he will purify you from impure motives, from selfish ambition, whatever it is that needs to be sent out of you, that he will have his way with us this morning. I want you to think of one person in your life that you want to lay before God today asking for uh, his touch of mercy, of grace, of conviction to come upon them for it is someone that you know in this moment they are not living in the light and we're asking for the light of God to break into their life. So lay that name of that person before the Lord. And a name was brought to me this morning named Ashley. I want you to cry out to God for Ashley. You probably don't know her. You don't know her. You don't know exactly what she is facing this morning, but she is facing a major tragedy and obstacle in her life. I want you to lay her before God. God, we ask all this in your name. And the church said, Amen. I have friends who love to preach, but they don't love the church where they get to preach. They don't don't love the people. They don't agree with the mission. They don't get along with the leaders. I have other friends like myself who love to preach, and we love where we get to do it. We love the churches that we get to serve. We believe in the mission. We believe in the vision that we are a part of. Uh, And in my over eight years of preaching here, uh, it is rare that I wake up on a Sunday not loving what I get to do. As I've been reading and praying through uh, the Bible this year, reading and praying through the Psalms, there are sometimes I come across a certain passage that God wants me to go back to and not only go back to it, sometimes he wants me to send it to other people to pray over me. And one of those that I've landed on recently is Psalm chapter 71, verse 15 and 18, which I think is so appropriate for today. We're in the third uh, week of uh, a three-part series I'm doing called Image Bearers. We're talking about biblical sexuality. I want to welcome those who are tuned in today. We have people in lake houses, beach houses, people in hospital rooms who are tuned into this worship, and I know they were blessed by your singing today. In Psalm chapter 71, it says this, My mouth will tell of your righteous acts, of your deeds of salvation all day long, though their number is past my knowledge. I will come praising the mighty deeds of the Lord God. I will praise your righteousness, yours alone. And God, from my mouth, from my youth, you have taught me, and I still proclaim your wondrous deeds. So even to old age and gray hairs, oh God, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to the next generation. I ask you to pray this over me in the days, weeks to come. Don't come up to me looking to see if there are gray hairs growing on my head 
or in my beard because they're growing. You may think they are. It's really the way the light reflects off of, of my hair. All right, just trust me in this one. Uh, all right. Steve Garber is a guy, and he said this. Christian's biggest challenge today is that we've learned to love the wrong things. And it is possible for us to live life in a way that we love issues, and in loving issues, we fail to love people. And I want to believe it's possible for us to care about issues, but to never allow issues to keep us from loving people, whoever that other person is. Now, I've thought about this a lot uh, the last few weeks. But one of the reasons we can love issues and, and grow to love issues more than people is you can, you can learn an issue, study an issue, come to understand an issue, learn everything there is about an issue, and sometimes it may change. A lot of times it doesn't. You can become an expert on that. But when it comes to people, we're wired differently. And, and the moment you think you totally understand a person or a group of people, they change their mind. They change their ways, right? And it can become hard. What I acknowledge this morning, and I even speak this in front of you, is the preaching is such a dangerous thing, and I take this so seriously. Because whenever I approach a text on a Sunday morning, it's not just to uh, inform you of what the text says, it's to inspire you. I go to God on behalf of you. I ask questions for us. And I know when I stand up here to preach, what I want to do every Sunday is place Jesus in front of you in a way that he's the hero of the story. He's the center of it all. I want to lift up God. I want to be filled with the power of the Spirit. So you can too, but I want to preach in a way that I am helping to equip you to be certain kind of people on Mondays and Tuesdays and Thursdays. Because this isn't about giving you something that will hold, uh, like just hold you above the water until next Sunday when we come back together. But preaching is about equipping people. Uh, because we say it here, and I believe this, that church is not the place where we come to meet with God. It's where we learn how to meet God everywhere else. So uh, you see behind me, and maybe you've been a little distracted by this this morning, this is a hoopah. I've passed by some of you earlier, and you had your phones out Googling what hoopah means. Now, uh, I've mentioned this before. I've talked about it a little bit, but I've never, like, shown you what this is like. So this is a hoopah. If you've ever been to a Jewish wedding, most likely you've seen one of these. Maybe it wasn't even a Jewish wedding and people were using something, some kind of canopy like this. And maybe they didn't even know what it meant. But I want to unpack this for you, okay? And it may sound like I'm doing a, a sermon this morning on marriage, but I'm not. I want to talk about the mission of God. I want to talk about what it means to be a church that lives for God in all we do. And to do that, I want to start out with this image of a hoopah. Now, what a hoopah is, is uh, most of them, you can even Google, you can look up images. There are four posts, and on top of the four posts, they would put a prayer shawl. So a prayer shawl was something that Jews would wear around them. Um, you can read about it in the Old Testament. And when it came to a wedding, they would put it on these four sticks, and they would hang this prayer shawl, and it stood for the glory of God that was hovering over this wedding, a glory of God that was hovering over a union. Uh, so, the, the hoopah was there. And here's what, a, here's what a groom would say to a Jewish bride in a wedding. There are a few lines that they would speak. I will take you out. I will rescue you. I will redeem you. I will take you to me. And this language comes straight from Exodus chapter 19. I'm not going to unpack Exodus 19 for you today, but go home and read Exodus 19. Because guys like Ray Vanderland, sometimes read Jewish theologians, Jewish scholars... And they, um, 
they, they help us understand Jewish context. So Jewish weddings, so many of the, the traditions in Jewish weddings come from Exodus 19, right before the Ten Commandments. Where in Exodus 19, what you have is God comes to his people. He comes to Moses and he says, prepare the people to meet with me. Prepare them for this because I'm going to come down to them. And then he tells, he tells Moses, you usher the people up to the mountain. And God says, um, when a horn blows is when the people move. And then God gives them these sayings that are used in Jewish weddings, like, I will take you out, I'll rescue you, I'll redeem you, I will take you to me. Um, so this is how it happened. The glory of God came in a cloud in Exodus 19, which is where hoopah comes from. That the glory of God hovers over this union. A- and then these vows are exchanged. Now, Jews, most Jews, read the Ten Commandments as wedding vows. We probably didn't read it that way. We probably read the Ten Commandments as rules that were to be kept. But for Jews, it was God in Exodus 19 preparing to meet with his people, to usher them into a covenant. And then uh, Exodus 20 with the Ten Commandments are wedding vows. After all, the first one is, there will be no other gods before me. And then after that, it's, you don't worship any other gods but me. And don't misuse the name of God. And the fourth commandment is the Sabbath, as if God is laying himself in front of these people wanting them to know that I want you to choose me forever. And even on day four, I'm asking you to take your hands off of life because of the day of a week where God wants us to rest so that this union between people and God can be strengthened and cultivated. So the first four commandments are about who you are before the Lord before it even gets to who we are with other people. And So the hoopah is this cloud that hovers, and the marriage would take place under a hoopah. The prayer shawl was the cover, and the same God who formed a covenant with people in Exodus is the same God who forms this covenant when a man and a woman come together in marriage. But but for Jews, especially long ago, uh, the marriage, after the wedding, they still weren't fully married yet. I'm going to spare you some details, all right? But Jewish weddings would be celebrated for days, not just for a couple of hours one night. So after they had this wedding to where the broom and the bride had exchanged vows, they would be ushered to a room where the prayer shawl was placed over a bed, and then the crowd would go outside, and they would wait until the man and the woman became one for the first time, all right? You talk about some pressure, am I right? <laughs> and... So then after, after that, they would come out of the room, and then they would celebrate this wedding for, for days. And I think what is so important, and this is why the hoop is even here this morning, is that for Jews, even back in Exodus 19 and 20, the hoopah was not a snapshot. All right, the, the hoopah was not just this moment in time where you could have some picture or some memory. The, the hoopah became this launching pad where Jesus is the one who picks up on the Ten Commandments in the Sermon on the Mount, right? Where in Matthew chapter 5, it's Jesus who lays in front of people, and what he lays before them is um, that you were called to be a city on a hill. You were called to be the light of the world. 
And Jesus is preparing people that now Jesus is, uh, he understands that there's this progression throughout the history of the world. And the progression is what God established with Israel now is something that God wants to send throughout all the world. So Jesus wants the church to understand, his followers understand that the light, you are the light of the world, you're the salt of the earth. And then Jesus begins not to reinterpret the Ten Commandments, but to help people understand that the Ten Commandments aren't just vows you speak with your mouth, but vows are meant to be performed. You see this throughout the Psalms. Vows are to be performed. You don't just speak them, you live them. So this is where Jesus says, you've heard it was said, don't murder, but don't think you're some great person because you haven't killed someone in your life. Because actually what God's getting to is an issue of anger in the heart. You think you may be a great person because you haven't committed adultery and you haven't cheated on your spouse, but Jesus comes saying, but when you look at someone lustfully, it's like you're committing adultery in your heart. And Jesus helps people to understand that it's not just words that flow from your mouth, it's this way of life. So, for the rest of this sermon, when you look up here and you see hoopa, I want you to think not just of a man and a woman who come together in a marriage. It's God who is preparing his people with vows that are to be lived out in everyday life. And I think this is so important, especially in a series where we're talking about sensitive stuff, about sexuality. In the last two sermons I've laid before you, talking about what sexuality is, is it's first and foremost, it's who you are with God. And God created every person in the image of God. We are image bearers. And marriage, just like behind me, becomes this witness to the world. When it was established in Exodus 19 and 20, it was because God was preparing his people to be witnesses in the world. And here's where it gets so difficult. Because how are Christians to navigate culture? I mean, I'm, I'm a preacher, and I, I mean, I, I grow up reading these preachers who say things like, when you stand up in front of people, you need to hold the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other, as if to say, you can't preach the Bible without helping people understand what's going on in the culture around you. And I don't think these are the most difficult days for preachers. I can't imagine what it's like for preachers who had to preach during the Civil War and during uh, the Great Depression and and other tragedies uh, that have hit. But it's helping people understand and navigate culture and how to weave in and out and how to penetrate culture. Because how we do all this plays this huge part in how the kingdom of God expands throughout the world. Um, It's as if God is inviting us into this dance of how we take the truth of God and navigate culture and how we walk the streets and enter into the marketplace and go into our neighborhoods knowing when we should speak a word of Christ and when we don't and how we dispense love. Uh, So Casey and I, every once in a while, we have this adventurous spirit and we want to go take dance classes. Um, We've learned how to swing. We've done salsa. Um... And it's, it's really fun because we're in this room with a lot of people. There's some instructor guiding us. And, and Casey and I are having this great time. And, and I'm this dude that I'm like this free-flowing guy. You know, when I forget what I'm supposed to do with my left foot and my right foot, I take it as a moment just to freestyle, all right? Personality comes out. And I just decide to do whatever I want to do. If I want to try to spin on my head, I spin on my head. I, I, I'm just this free-flowing. And it, it embarrasses Casey and it frustrates instructors. Um, but I see other people sometimes when we go to dance classes who, uh, and it's usually, uh, it's usually the man who within the first few moments just quits, walks off the dance floor because he can't get his left foot to go in the right direction. He can't get his right foot. He's stepping on feet. He's hurting whoever he's dancing with and he just quits. 
and I hesitate to use a metaphor like dancing because I know some of you are raised where dancing like can send you directly to hell, right? Uh, The first church where I preached, there was a church split right before I got there. And one of the reasons half the church left was because they laid these 10 edicts in front of the elders of the church. And one of them was, we don't want anybody to sway during a song. Because apparently swaying can lead straight to like playing with snakes in church. Am I right? But there is this, there is this, I think, dance God's inviting us into when it comes to navigating culture. And it's God who's trying to teach us how to put the left foot in front of the right foot and when to take two steps with your left foot and when to take, maybe when to spin. And it becomes this dance in which we have to surrender and be in tune with the Spirit. Now, I understand anytime we talk about being God's people in the world, we have to understand there has to be this distance between us and the world in order for us to maintain righteousness, right? But, but if we distance ourselves from the world and never engage the world, righteousness turns to self-righteousness. Because we aren't following God where God's going. Uh, and John 3.16 says stuff like, for God so loved the world. You read in the Bible where God wants all people to be saved. And something that just convicts me to the core is when Jesus talks about loving people and loving neighbors, there are no footnotes to it. There are no caveats. There are no exceptions. You don't get to choose which neighbor you want to love or not. Not if you're following Jesus. What I'm learning in my life, and this is so hard, is that sometimes being faithful is showing up for difficult conversations. Not to speak, sometimes to listen. And sometimes being faithful to God is not just showing up for difficult conversations, but it's staying in and remaining in difficult conversations. Because I believe that Christianity at its best isn't just where you stand on issues. It's how you navigate the cultural climate around you. Because what I'm sensing, especially in our culture right now in America, in the Western world with Christians, is if we're not careful, we learn and we want to stand for God. But in standing for God, we forget what it means to walk with God. So we stand for God and we want to stand on issues, but we become these permanent statues that aren't living temples who are trying to walk and navigate life with God and wherever God is leading. The good news is this, and this is what I've tried to lay before you the last two weeks. The good news is this, that what God has done for me, God wants to do for all. What God does for a person, God wants to spread to the world. So, When the church understands their calling, they don't run from culture, they run into it as people who've been clothed in righteousness. When the church is at its best and we understand what our calling is, we refuse to have groups to hate because we're overwhelmed with this thought from God that every person is redeemable. When the church understands their calling, they don't wait for legislation that come from the state or D.C. or a capital because they receive their mission and their orders from the Spirit of God. So, I want to talk for a few moments about Christ and culture. Matthew chapter 13, and I'm not going to go deep into a couple of passages. I'll give them to you to go home and study later, all right? Uh, Matthew chapter 13 is a parable Jesus tells about the wheat and the weeds. Um, And if you see me messing with microphones almost every Sunday, these over-the-ear mics are the most uncomfortable things in the world, all right? Uh, they, the, the sound is so good because lapels are here for people like me who are moving around. It's a muffled voice. These sound so good, but they're the most uncomfortable things in the world. All right. So forgive me for that. Matthew chapter 13, Jesus tells a parable 
In fact, in Matthew 13, he tells a bunch of parables. He tells a lot of stories. And it had to frustrate some people back in the day because whenever Jesus wanted to talk about the kingdom of God, he didn't say the kingdom of God is this. He would say the kingdom of God is like, and then he would tell a story. Do you know a person in your life that has a story for everything? You mentioned a topic, boom, they got a story that goes with it. There had to be times where the followers of Jesus are like, man, did the story fairy just descend upon Jesus? Because it seems like some days he just tells story after story. Matthew 13, he tells a story about the wheat and the weeds. And he unpacks it for them in verse 24 through 30. If your life groups are meeting today, I'm asking this to be one of the passages you study. And in this, the parable is that there was a field of wheat. The enemy comes and sows weeds in the wheat. And then they come before the master and they say, do you just want us to like chop up all the weeds? And the response is, don't do it. You can read in verse 29. He replied, no, for in gathering the weeds, you would uproot the wheat along with them. Let both of them grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, collect the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Let them grow together. Uh, When God puts the armor of God on you in Ephesians 6, no one is given an ax in an attempt to cut off who you think need to be cut off from the kingdom. No one has the spiritual gift of choosing who is in and who is out. God does not need you to be the bodyguard of heaven. He doesn't need you to be the security guard of the kingdom of God. God can take care of that. And I think what Jesus was teaching those people was, it is not your job to try to separate the wheat and the weeds. You be people who chase after the heart of God in everything you do. But in a way, you learn to coexist with the world and trusting that God will make all things right in the end, that he can handle it. Acts 17, Paul does this so well, where Paul would go to a new place, and he wouldn't just go in and drop a church and plant it. Paul would move into new places, and he would study culture. He would, he would want to know, what are, what are the challenges that I'm facing here? And in Acts 17, he goes to Athens. I think it's one of the most remarkable stories in the New Testament because here's Paul going to one of the most immoral cities around. And the, what you see is he goes there and he studies the culture. He's watching how people interact in the marketplace and in the streets and what are the things that are shaping and forming people in that culture. And what it says is in verse 16, while Paul was waiting for others to join him in Athens, he was deeply distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and also in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of your versions say argue, which in the Greek, it can actually be argue, but it's not argue like we think of argument today. Where, uh, especially in an election year, arguments become so heated and they tear people down. But back then, reason was a good thing. Or Paul knew how to go into a place with other people who didn't think like he could think. And he could interact with them in a way that they would invite him back the next day or the next week to talk more about subjects. He knew the beauty of entering into dialogue, forming relationships, in the hopes of one day being able to speak a word of Jesus into them. And if you keep reading Acts 17... When Paul addresses them and starts talking to them about God, the only thing he quotes word for word, it it was from their own sources and their own philosophers. Because Paul was trying to be in tune with what's going on in culture. How can I speak a word of God into this? 
So we're aware this morning of so many challenges that we are faced, especially in conversations of sexuality, of covenant, of the breaking down of covenant. And whenever there is a challenge we face, we study it, we love it, we dive into it. I'm not saying we are in need more now than ever, but we are in need today of what it means to discern with God, to follow the guidance of the Holy Spirit, to be people who understand it. In the world, we are called to deal with people, not projects and not issues. We're called to love and deal with people. So I have a friend named Caleb uh, Coltenbach, great author, wrote a book called Messy Grace. You should check it out. Uh, Caleb, uh, um, our relationship struck up about a year ago. Um, when Caleb was two years old, he's a little older than I am, so he's in his upper 30s. When he was two years old, so this is back right around 1980, uh, his parents divorced. Within a year, uh, he found out that his mother had moved in with her partner. This is a guy whose parents divorced when he was two. By high school, he discovers both of his parents are now gay. So can you imagine both parents divorcing, and now mom moves in with partner. He didn't know his dad was until later on in high school. He would spend half the time with his dad in Kansas City, half the time with his mother in another part of Kansas City. And when he was with his mom, his mother um, became an advocate. She became an advisor for for GLAD around the Kansas City area that was heavily involved in the LGBT community there. So when he was with his mom, he went to parties. He um, He would go to parades. And he remembered as a young boy, eight, nine, ten years old, he would be in these parades with his mom. And he always remembered there being a Christian group that would show up somewhere down the parade. And he remembered as a young boy, he would just learn to read, and he would look up at those signs, and he would see stuff that said, God hates them. And he would hear these words that these Christians would be yelling at them, and how God hated them. And, and there were a couple of parades where he remembered people shooting water guns at them. Some had water and some had urine. And he remembered going home. And asking his mom, like, who are those people? And his mother would teach him that those are Christians and they hate you. So he was taught to hate them because they hated his mother. They hated his dad. They hated the people that he spent most of his time with. He was set on never becoming one of them. In high school, around the age of 16 or 17, he was invited to a Bible study with a friend. And he wanted to go because he wanted to argue with Christians of why they were so filled of hate and why they were so judgmental. So he went. And when he went uh, to that Bible study, he said he wanted to go and pretend like, he called it ninja Christian. He wanted to go in and act like he was one of them and then try to come up with ways to argue with them and post them against the wall with arguments. And when he walked in, they had everyone open to uh, 2 Corinthians, so he did. And it was one of those where they went around the room reading verses. So he's, his palms started sweating. He's like, I've never read the Bible before. And it got to him. And he started reading something. And they were like, man, what are you, where are you reading from? And he was actually in Second Chronicles. He wasn't in Second Corinthians because he just didn't know the Bible. And he said, I went there to debate Christians. But the focus of the Bible study was on Jesus. And I kept getting drawn to Jesus. He uh, remembers the day that he confessed Jesus as Lord, and he was baptized into Christ, and he went home and told his mom and dad, and they were, it was hostile. It was like he had turned his back on them. He went to college and became, wanted to become a preacher, felt the calling of God in his life to preach. 
the very first church where he preached, uh, he was, uh, had been there for about a year and a half. It's a church of about 100 people. And he remembers the Sunday where his mother decided to go to church with him for the first time. She wanted to see what her son did every Sunday. And she came in, and people weren't really sure how to interact with her. Some people would say hi, but when they did, they ran away. They didn't really know what to say or what questions to ask because they knew about Caleb's story. And Caleb went home that day so thrilled that his mother came to church. And the next Sunday when he walked up to the front doors of the church, there were two elders who met him there and said, we need to talk to you for a moment. And they pulled him in the room and they said, don't you ever bring a person like them into this church again. And he said, well, then I quit right now. And they said, you can't quit. We don't have anyone to preach the sermon today. And he said, then I'll preach this sermon, and then I'll quit. And he stood up, and he gave him this hellfire and brimstone sermon. It wasn't to people who weren't saved. It was to Christians who were saved. About evangelism. About what it means to love people in the world. And he walked off the stage, walked down the aisle, walked out the door, and never went back to that church. When Caleb became a Christian, became a preacher, he started studying what the Bible has to say about the lifestyles his parents had chosen. And his convictions changed. And he stood up to preach a sermon down the road about what we would, I think, define biblical marriage as between a husband and a wife. He stood up to preach this sermon on the uh, homosexuality and what the Bible has to say about it. And when he stood up to preach, his mom and his dad were on the back row. And I read Caleb's story, and I'm drawn to it because for years, for a few years, I've read people, I've had conversations with people, and I've been looking for the stories that I can gravitate towards of people who want to hold truth with all they have, but also be people of grace, who want to love people no matter where they are. Because I think for Caleb is what I also think of Sycamore View. We're not going to be a Westboro Baptist, and we're not going to show up at parades and holding up signs of how God hates any group of people. But we're also not a church that's going to be fully accepting and fully affirming. And it's navigating truth and love is so tricky. It gets tough. It's difficult. It's complex. It's challenging. Yet, aren't you grateful that God shows up in complexity Like in the midst of confusion and complexity and what it means to be God's people in certain situations, God shows up. Now, I realize in this room that I have people listening to me right now who are struggling with your orientation or you have before. I know I'm preaching in front of people who have relatives who have or do, uh, people who have friends who have or do, people who have coworkers or neighbors. And for some people, they are asking different questions now than they used to because someone they dearly love is either struggling with this issue or they have fully given into it. Now, what, what, what can become really challenging for some of us now is it doesn't, it, for, for a long time it seemed like there was like the Christian answer to this and then the secular. But now you have a growing group of Christians who fully affirm and fully accept. And, and some of their arguments are this, that when they see how Jesus talks about love and how the Bible talks about love, love trumps all things. So if there is love between two people of any kind, why should they not be able to practice whatever that love is? Some of the arguments they will make is Jesus never talks about this issue. And and I've read some of these books. 
There, there are folks who take this, this stand about being fully accepting and fully affirming who want to work with history and Roman Empire and what were the challenges then in culture, and they work with the Greek texts, and uh, that they land on a place where they aren't sure that the Bible addresses what a monogamous relationship between two people of any kind would look like because did the Bible even have those categories? Now, there's still the majority of Christians in America who don't affirm. They hold to what we would call the biblical traditional view of marriage, and marriage is between a husband and a wife. And the reason why is, even though the Bible doesn't talk a lot about homosexuality, every passage where it does is a prohibition text. It's in the context of something that is outside the boundaries that God has set up. When when Paul talks about sexual ethic, or you read about these ethics, there is this trajectory throughout the Bible, which when it comes to oppressed social issues, there's a trajectory toward freedom. But when it comes to human sexuality, there's a trajectory toward clarity on God-given boundaries. And these are also people who do careful work, and, and they land in a place where, for all people, it's not the thought you have that is a sin. It's how you act upon the thought. I have a friend who has uh, one of his closest mentors gave him, he said it's the worst advice he's ever been given. He said the worst advice was his friend said, uh, it's not lust with the first look, it's lust with the second look. So you better make sure that first look is long and good. All right? He's like, man, it's the worst advice I've ever been given. Okay. Um, but it's not the thought, it's how you act upon a thought. So, Here's, here's the statement I keep coming back to. Is it possible to be for maintaining traditional, historical, biblical ethic, the marriages between a husband and a wife, and to be for all people? And I guess I can ask it in question form. Is it possible to be for what we would classify as traditional marriage and to be for all people? All right, because some of the things that make me sit back and think of what does this mean for the church is when I see research from the age group of 16 to 29, where they, when they are asked, what are your thoughts about the church? And they believe, 16 to 29-year-olds, as they respond that the church is known for being anti-LGBT, that 90% of them said the church is hateful towards LGBT community more than the church is for love or the church is for evangelism or the church wants to exist for the good of the community. When I see younger people thinking this is the number one issue in the church, I just want to say, I think the church can do better about creating a reputation that is more gospel and kingdom oriented. When I see the suicide rates of the LGBT community, I just want to sit back and say, what does it mean for us to live in a way that we value all of life because all of life was created by God and is sustained by God? I know there's so many complexities, and when it comes to sexual ethics, I think it's always good for us to go back to Jesus. So let me broaden this conversation. It's more than just LGBT. What I'm addressing, this goes for anyone uh, and all of us who, uh, who, who ask questions about sexuality, uh, have affection for whoever it is. John chapter 8, I think, speaks into this. Where in John 8, Jesus has this group of people who bring a woman caught in adultery before him. Uh, And it's a story where they bring this woman, she's before Jesus, they're about to stone her because the Bible says to stone people who've been caught in adultery. And um, 
Jesus says, may the first person who has no sin, may those who have no sin throw the first stone. They drop their stones, they walk away, all right? And then Jesus is left with this woman. And there's this statement by Jesus, and this to me goes for whatever category you want to place people in a category of sin. I mean, whether it's having children out of wedlock, whatever that may be, I want to broaden this category as I make this point. All right, Jesus stands with this woman. What he says is, I do not condemn you. Go and sin no more. But before you can ever speak that word into the life of anybody, what you need to realize is before Jesus speaks that word to that woman, Jesus advocates for her. He stands with her. He advocates for dignity in that woman. So before you can speak to people about leaving whatever lifestyle they need to leave, whatever decisions they've made that they need to walk away from, we advocate just like Jesus advocates. Now, there's so many challenges to the covenant God has established. They're numerous. Uh, Watch reality television. I'm going to make some enemies, all right? I'm not judging anyone because there's stuff I watch that you could post me on and tell me that I shouldn't be watching it, all right? Uh, But but for a show like The Bachelor or The Bachelorette, if you want to talk about what is the downfall of the beauty of covenant, put together a show where there's a guy with 20 women who does all kind of things with over a dozen of them in the hope of falling in love at the end, all right? Uh, When you look throughout the Bible the ethic that the Bible places in front of us. And I've said this before, I want to say it carefully. It's not that God's idea of relationship is that intimacy is between a man and a woman. That's not it. It's the intimacy is between a husband and a wife in covenant. And there's a big difference. It's not just man and woman. It's husband and wife in covenant. Jesus is for truth. And Jesus is for people. And he's rooting for people. And I want to invite people, just as Jesus does, into a deeper place with God, because that's our mission. It's who we are called to be. I want it to be the burning desire inside of me that I want people to connect with Jesus. And this is where I think the challenge for the church is we must be a welcoming place for whoever is in need of confession and healing. And whoever is a person who wants to walk a pathway of confession Confession, healing, and spiritual growth, the church should be a safe place for that person. So back to my friend Caleb. Um, His parents wanted nothing to do with church until he started pastoring a church in Dallas. Uh, And when he was there, his mother moved from Kansas City. Her partner of 22 years died of cancer. She moved from Kansas City to Dallas. And when she showed up to move into her new house, It was the church where Caleb was preaching that showed up to help her move in. And it was the church that started inviting her to lunch and to dinner and over to their house. And it wasn't her going to church, the building, that drew her into Jesus. It was the church going to her. And his mother would come to the point in her life before she would pass away that she surrendered her life to Jesus. Her dad, much the same, his dad, much the same way, came to know the Lord because of how that church went to him. So it's time for us as the church to raise the stakes for costly obedience, for costly truth, for costly grace, for costly discipleship. I want to ask those who are serving communion today, if you'll go ahead and go to the back. 
you'll get the trays. I want us to go straight into communion because I think coming out of the sermon is a great place for us to celebrate what God has done for us. And um, before I pray for the bread, I just want to acknowledge we're in a room full of people who are in desperate need of belonging and desperate need of community. And I think it is at communion where Jesus, where we celebrate how the body of Jesus was broken so we could be made whole, that we also realize how God raises the stakes on what it means to be the church in the world. And when God first established this thing called Hoopa in Exodus 19 and 20, when God first established this, it was right after the people for days and weeks had rebelled against God. They were tired of roaming in the desert. They were ready to go back to Egypt. They were ready to leave the pursuit of God to go back to bondage. They were complaining. They didn't like each other. And it was out of all that rebellion that God still invited them into this deep covenant. And I think it's a good word for us. Old and young, white and black, wherever we are in life, we have a God who invites us as broken as we are to come as broken people, to be reminded of everything Jesus has done for us. Can we bow our heads? Close our eyes. For God, in this moment, we give you thanks. For all the ways we feel pulled, for the confusion sometimes of what it means to be your people in the world, all the complexities in this moment, we lean into what we know is true. That you came and you walked this earth. You died. You rose from the dead. You live forever. You call us deeper into your heart. So for all you have done in this moment, we give you thanks through Jesus. Amen. If these trays are passed, uh, it may be your first time here, it may not be. We invite everyone to partake. Enjoy Jesus. Let's pray again. Uh, God, if I were you, I would have given up on me a long time ago. In years and seasons of my own rebellion and selfishness. Uh, But because of you, because of the price of freedom, because of the blood that was shed by Jesus, so we could be ushered into a brand new life with you for for all this, for all you've done. Uh, Saying thank you doesn't even seem like enough, but May the thank you that comes from us in this moment call us into deeper reflection on what it means to be identified by you and as children of God. Through Jesus we pray. Amen.
Pray with me again, please. God, for uh, the fact that you invite us into partnership to be a part of how you are extending grace and mercy throughout this world, uh, we take this moment to give uh, just out of commitment, out of uh, partnership. And as we give, uh, we pray prayers that you will use us, our time, our energy, our resources to advance your kingdom uh, here in Memphis and Shelby County and beyond. Through Jesus we pray. Amen. As the trays are being passed, we're about to sing a song. As we sing this, there may be someone here who just, the image of hoopah and covenant may have touched your heart and you want to respond to the invitation of Jesus inviting you into a relationship with him. For those of us, uh, there's going to be prayer throughout this room. If you need someone to pray with, any desire, any need, any concern in your life, we have elders, we have prayer warriors who are here to receive you. Uh, If there's someone here, Uh, or all of us, let's leave this place today remembering that we live from the covenant of God. You don't have to try to earn the favor of God. You don't have to earn this right to be in this covenant with him, but we live from this so that the goodness of God can spread. Can we stand together this morning? Let's sing. Feel free to find a place for you to go and pray.